0: You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk
1: Now let's turn again in our Bibles to the first chapter of the book of Genesis. And we're going to read there in chapter 1, verse 27, 26 this evening the first numbers get smaller and smaller as you get older and older and we're going to read from verse 26 through to chapter 2 and verse three we are engaged these Sunday evenings in a series uh, I think an eight part series on the first three chapters of the book of Genesis that are so significant not only uh, for the whole of the Bible but of course for our Christian living in the present time. So let's hear the word of God. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. You can see that the psalmist in Psalm 8 was... Meditating on these very words in Genesis chapter 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds of the air, and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made. And it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning. The sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work, and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. John Calvin, the Genevan French reformer, often says in his writings that the Scriptures are like spectacles that God has placed on the eyes of bleary-eyed people to enable them to see creation and sin and redemption and the world and the future with better vision. If you've never had to wear spectacles or contact lenses, that may seem a strange concept to you. But uh, a good number of us, I can tell, not only wear spectacles, but contact lenses. We wake up in the morning, uh, we stretch either for our little packet of contact lenses or for our spectacles, because otherwise the world in which we live tends to be something of a blur. We place these things on our noses, which is, of course, why God gave us Two ears and one nose so that we could wear spectacles rather than contact lenses. And uh, everything comes into focus. And the problem to which the Bible has not yet come, but we know it as the problem to which the Bible will soon come, is that our rebellion against God has not only corrupted our will and our desires, it has affected and infected the way in which we think about everything. There is such a tie-in, isn't there, between the psalm we were studying this morning and a passage like this that in so many ways lies underneath it as the great positive biblical teaching about which the psalmist thinks in negative terms, about man in his sinfulness and in his need. There is this deep-seated ignorance. And because we are out of focus, we are unable to see anything clearly. Very impressed by the words of Johannes Kepler, the 16th, 17th century great mathematician and astronomer who said when people commented on the uh, discovery he made of planetary movements, that all he was doing was thinking God's thoughts after him. Thinking God's thoughts after him. So that as a Christian who believed that God had spoken in the word of Scripture and that the revelation he gave in his word would be consistent with the revelation he gave in creation. He had listened to what Scripture said, and he began to discover therefore with those lenses in his spectacles that what he now needed to do, which was such a revolution in the 16th century, and the great impetus to the scientific revolution from which we benefit now, he began to understand that since we don't come to the Bible and tell it what it should mean, we don't come to God's revelation in the book of nature. And out of our own philosophical principles, tell it what it should mean. We have learned to listen to the scriptures. And so we need to listen to the book of nature. And of course, with the lenses of Scripture. He was able to listen with greater clarity. He was able to understand what the great calling of a scientist is, to look through these clear lenses that told him everything had been made for the glory of God and for the blessing of man. And then in his scientific enterprise to gaze upon the universe and admire in wonder what God had done. And like a little child, trying to explore some great mathematical formula, trying to learn how we think God's thoughts after Him. And Genesis chapter 1 has been expounding this principle to us. And now it comes to uh, one of the most important sections in the whole Bible. In a sense, we could say the whole Bible depends upon these verses. But a section that is so significant to us, uh, because one of the ways in which sin has distorted the understanding of 21st century man, as we were hearing this morning, is it's not only that we have divorced creation from the God who created it, But we are no longer sure what the answer to the psalmist's question is in Psalm 8. What is man? Is he at the end of the day? Simply so much water, so many molecules, worth very little. Or is this profound sense that we find everywhere in the earth, this profound sense... Surely we have meaning and significance. Surely life is not an accident. Surely love is not a mere biological oddity. Here we discover in these pages given through Moses, the answer to the frustrated quest of man who turns his or her back upon God. That the youngest Christian, the simplest Christian, may rejoice in this. This is the wonder of my existence. I have been made by a loving Creator as His image, for His glory, in my blessing. And therefore it is in honoring and glorifying Him and knowing Him that my blessing will come to its final consummation and ultimate bliss. I think there's a very domestic picture we can use to describe what Moses is doing here in the first chapter of Genesis. And uh, in a sense, the scriptures themselves in the book of Job reflect on this. Um, You may have had a father who was good with his hands, and uh, perhaps you and your brother, or for that matter, you and your sister, you You watched him making something, perhaps in his workshop when you were very small, scarcely able to look over the bench. And you might have said to him, Daddy, what are you making? And maybe he said, exaggerating things a little, I am making the biggest ship in all the world. And I'm making it so that you can sail on it. And uh, your little eyes became like saucers as they... Looked over the bench at the, the sheer genius. Surely your dad was greater than anyone else's dad. Surely your dad was the biggest and the brightest and the best dad in all the world. Now, the book of Job reflects on the fact that the angels were present watching what God was doing, like children watching their father make something. I want you to imagine the angels, who are also sons of God, incidentally. I want you to imagine the angels just looking over the horizon as uh, God is putting his creation together in this six-day plan. And uh, saying to him, because we're told they rejoiced in what he did. They weren't just kind of awestruck by what he did. Their spirits were lifted with praise and admiration. And I want you to imagine two angels saying, but Father, what are you doing here? And as we saw last time, his answer would be, I am building the biggest cathedral the world has ever seen. And actually, if you think about Genesis 1 and its description of creation in that way, Everything begins to fit into place, not just Genesis 1, but the way in which the Scriptures reflect on it. Why, again in the book of Job, does Job say at creation the morning stars were singing together? Because they were part of the cathedral that God was building. And as he builds this cathedral, you can imagine the angels admiring everything that God is doing. These creatures that are appearing in the sky. These amazing sea creatures swimming underneath without needing to come up for air. All that is growing in terms of horticulture. The beasts that roam across the face of the earth in All their multifacetedness. What must it have been like, I often think, to see the very first giraffe? What must that have been like? And to see the very first butterfly. And then turning to the Heavenly Father and saying, but where is the congregation? And then we come to the sixth day. And the congregation is beginning to arrive. The ones who will lead the service of worship. The ones who on an earthly plane have the mental capacity, the verbal ability to speak out the glories of God. The ones who are going to be created in a sense to be prophets, priests and kings in creation. The ones who will speak the voice of God to creation. The ones who will rule over creation. The ones who will intelligently lead the worship of all creation. And as the day dawns and passes on, we come to this amazing moment in Scripture when God makes man as His image. And this is such a vast theme. I'm glad it was touched on this morning. It's a theme worthy of an entire series in itself. But let me underline for us this evening, try and just pull out three threads from the tapestry of teaching that we're given here in Genesis 1.26 following. And say that we should notice that God, God does something here in three special ways. There's something supremely special about what God is doing here. Incidentally, how tragic that nowadays parents are encouraged uh, to tell all their children, you're special. You're really special. And one day the children are going to grow up and say, I don't think there is anything special about me. Nobody thinks I'm very special. Why my parents feed me that line? And all because we live under the sun, under the sun. And we say, you're special, but we're not special. We're twisted and broken. Here is the God who has made us actually saying right at the very beginning, the reason you're special is not because there's anything special about you. But because you are special to me. And I am doing special things for you. Now what are these special things? The first is this. God is making man, that is men and women, as a special, that is a distinct, a unique creation. If you read again from the beginning of Genesis chapter 1, you'll notice there are all kinds of rhythms run through it. There is a kind of beat. The same phrases are repeated again and again. Sometimes six, sometimes seven, sometimes even nine times. And then when we come to the end of verse 25, uh, there is a kind of silence, a break. Because something altogether different is about to take place. Now, what is it that is so different? Well, you'll notice it if you just glance down through Genesis chapter 1. In every other instance, when God creates, that creation begins with the words, let something happen. And then as that something happens, there is another characteristic expression used, the most frequent expression used in Genesis chapter 1 is that when God creates things from within the earth, they are created according to their kinds. If they're fish, they're created according to the kind of fishiness. If they're birds, they're created according to the kind of birdiness. They're created for their particular sphere in the cosmos. then you notice when God comes to create man, it's altogether different. His creation does not begin with, let it happen. His creation begins in some kind of mysterious, heavenly, divine council. In which God utters the words, let us make man. It's almost as though now he is saying, uh, I I can bring all this into being simply by speaking the word. But we are now going to do something for which we will in a sense roll up our sleeves, because this is very special. This is something so different, so sensitive, that it will not simply be sufficient for me to think this creature into being, But I'm going to be, as Genesis chapter 2 will tell us in a little more detail, intimately involved in his creation, personally involved in his creation. Because whereas everything else is made according to its kind, the great thing about man is that man is made according to God's kind. This is what's special about us. Take this away And we are no different from the birds and the beasts. But this is what makes men and women a unique part of creation. That we have been made, he says, in the image of God. Let us make man as our image. And so in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Now, what does it mean to be the image of God? One of the things that clearly means, if you think about what an image would have meant to the people who first heard these words, living in the ancient Near East, where when a king occupied territory, one of the things he would do would be erect a great statue representing himself and his dominion, and his power. Think about the story of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being called to bow down before this great image that Nebuchadnezzar had erected on the plains of Jura. Think if uh, it's nearer home and you study English literature of uh, Shelley's poem, Ozymandias, and the ruins of the great image on the in the desert of the person who at one time by that image had said, Look on me, you mighty, and despair. What was that image? It was the it was the representation of the reign of the king over his kingdom. Isn't it interesting that what we are immediately going to be told is that what man is created for is to to exercise God's reign over the earth. He is given dominion. But you notice it's not just a power thing. Moses tells us that when God made man as his image, he made him as an image that was like him. That is to say, that reflected him. Uh, where do you most frequently see your image? Uh, you know, unless you are uh, some kind of megalomaniac, you, you haven't got one in the backyard or in the kitchen. Uh, the place where you see your image, day in and day out for most of us, is in the mirror, isn't it? We look in the mirror and we see an image of ourselves that reflects us. And this is, the, this is the amazing dignity that God is giving to this new creature, this man and this woman. He's, he's making us to reflect himself, not just as a power thing, but to reflect him in his graciousness, his generosity, his kindness, his holiness his integrity, his absolute commitment to what he is doing. And he's making, he, he's making us like this so that we can have communion. Isn't it interesting that this is the one part of creation that begins with the words, let us. Whatever else that means, it means that God is a God in communion with himself. Of course, now that we are New Testament Christians, we understand, yes, this God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This God can use the first person plural about himself, the one God, because he's Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And if you're able to imagine the world that was before all worlds were, and its infinite satisfaction... And you understand there is something about the communion of the Father with His Son, and the Son with the Spirit, and the Spirit with the Father and the Son, and all the way round that unified triangle that is satisfying beyond words. You don't think God was bored before He made the world, do you? You don't think He is so small He needed you to find satisfaction? Sometimes we are blessed with relationships in which we find an echo of this, don't we? The people with whom we could spend hours without noticing that time has passed. The people who engross us because they love us. And there is this depth of discovery that we are able to make of one another And this is just a pale reflection in the image of the infinite life of the eternal triune God. And so when he makes man, he's not a Unitarian God making a Unitarian man. How boring that would be to be all dressed up with attributes and nobody to communicate them to. And so when he makes man, he makes man also as a little reflection, a miniature reflection of the inner community of his eternal being. And he makes him male and female, man and woman. And uh, we're told later on, incidentally, they were naked and they were not ashamed. They also would have noticed something else if they were naked, wouldn't they? She, no man. He, no woman. It's amazing, isn't it, in the 21st century that has become the century in which young people, more than any other century, have become familiar with the naked male and female body. That we are surrounded and obsessed with the notion that there's no difference. But he made us, yes, now here's the trick. He made us the image of God, men and women. Equally the image of God. But nevertheless, he made us different. And it's not some concoction of the medieval period that this is true. It is, as you remember, Jesus would always argue. Let's see how God did it in the beginning. That's just scraping the surface, actually, of the specialness of our creation. What a marvelous reality this is. You know, there are, um, there are counties, there are states in the United States of America spending endless billions of dollars In order to raise the self image of teenagers. And the more they spend, apparently statistically, the worse the self image gets. Why would that be the case? Because we don't have the resources in ourselves to have any sense of being special. And you can get teachers to say you're special, you can get parents to say you're special you see, it's only because God has made us special. And when the lenses are in the spectacles, we see this is true. No matter who we are, wise or simple, rich or poor, famous or unknown, powerful or powerless, to think that He has made you as His image. And He wants you to enjoy communion. Yes, with Himself, but communion with others. It is breathtaking. I'm amazed the angels had any breath left to rejoice in what God was doing. So God makes them as a special creation. Secondly, God gives them a special vocation. I mentioned this, that uh, having made them, the first thing he says to them is, I want you to have dominion over everything. Now that could be grievously misunderstood, couldn't it? You know, you're not supposed to imagine what was his name, Barney Rubble, if you remember him in the cartoons, going out with his, you know, his big stick and banging his, you know, first beast that he met, and sometimes his wife over the head. That's not what dominion means. This has got to do with being the image of God. So what does it mean? It means this: God reigns over everything. But this God wants to have fellowship with you. He wants to have communion with this man. So something is something's going to be needed for that. They're going to have to talk about something. Apart from anything else, when they get together in the cool of the day, they're going to have to talk about something. So what does God do? God says to this man and this woman, I want you in your little miniature world to be doing the kind of thing I have just done in the creation of everything and in my ruling of everything. And so, as I'm going to take care of the whole cosmos, I want you to take care of this little planet. And I want you to have dominion. Now, what will that mean? It will mean, first of all, you're going to need others like yourself. So be fruitful and increase. In number and fill the earth and subdue it. Remember how it all began? There was darkness that needed, in a sense, to be subdued by light. And God had said, Let there be light. And who knows what the earth looked like, but God is saying to them, You're going to need an army in your family because what I want you to do is to bring light throughout the world. And so he says, I'm going to give you dominion over everything. So rule over the fish and the birds and every living creature. And the whole thing is yours, he says, because I want you to rule over it. Remember what God had done? He had brought light where there was darkness. He had filled what was empty. And he had given form to what was shapeless. And that's exactly what he's telling them to do now. They are to fill the earth. They are to subdue it and give form to it. And they are are to create little images of themselves. And it's interesting, a couple of chapters later on, we'll find exactly this kind of language used about what man does man, man and woman isn't it interesting, don't people get it it's a man and a woman that then recreates another little man another little woman what's the first thing people ask once they know the weight, once they know the length they say who's he like why do we ask that because we expect the babies somehow or another to be like the parents. Why? Why should that be so? Is that just genetic stuff? No, well, that's the way God has made us. That's why, that's why the, the man or the woman who has little time for God is in awe of the creation of a baby. That's why you hear some of the people who destroy our society morally telling us they're so excited about having a child. Where does this privilege and joy come from? It comes from the fact that he made us as his image. He wants us to enjoy what he enjoys. He wants us to be able to, you see, what should what is, the most, what is the most basic instinct that should arise from us when a child is born? It is, uh, thank you nurses, thank you doctor, thank you dear wife. But, oh God, this is amazing that you've given me this privilege. And it's not just having babies, is it? It's having everything to explore, to have dominion over everything. One of the things I've said in, in the previous two addresses is that, that this doctrine of creation sets the Christian believer free in the world to explore everything that there is in the book of nature through the lenses of the book of Scripture. Listen to Johannes Kepler again, having just said, But all he was doing was thinking God's thoughts after him. He says, since we astronomers are priests of the highest God in regard to the book of nature, it benefits us to be thoughtful, not of the glory of our minds, but rather, above all else, the glory of God. Would to God he would raise up scientists with that spirit today, don't you think? And it's this sense of sheer wonder. And what is this man doing? But you know, you, you go up to this man in the, in the late 16th, early 17th century, and you say, why are you standing there looking up into the night sky? What's the point? Ah, but you see, he understands Genesis chapter 1, doesn't he? He says, I understand we, none of us can do everything. But this is the kind of thing God has made us to enjoy doing. And he's made me to love doing this. And so no matter what you do, this is why no matter what you do as a Christian, you're bound to do it differently from the way you would have done it if you weren't a Christian. That's what will puzzle your non-Christian friends. Why do they do things so differently from the way we do things? Well, it's because you're special. And you know why you're special. Because you've been made in this little way. God, your Heavenly Father, has said, I am the great God who has created the cosmos. And I want you to create something too. I want you to accomplish something too. Don't you sometimes feel, you know, when when you meet people who don't want to accomplish anything in their lives, you don't just think they're stupid, you think there's something wrong here. There's something basically gone wrong here. Now you see, that wouldn't be true if we're just beasts, would it? And so there is not only this special creation, there is this special provision. And that's the last thing I want us to notice. We're a special creation with a special vocation. And he blesses us with a special provision and he gives everything to them. You, you need to understand if you're a Christian, the notion that there is anything in the heart of God that wants to deprive you of anything that would be for your blessing is a lie from hell. That's where it comes from. He's saying now, all this is yours. Go and enjoy it. The tragedy of sin is not just that it breaks God's law. It destroys our joy. Because he's given us everything to enjoy. And you notice it's now that he's made man. I think mean, this is absolutely amazing. But after he's made all the other bits and pieces, he's the architect. And he's done all the other bits and pieces. And he stands back as the architect says, good, 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 good. It's only when the congregation arises that he says, this is very good. Now, I said, I think, last Sunday evening, there's only one possible standard for good in Genesis chapter 1. And that is God and what pleases him. And this is, this is wonderful, isn't it? That he sees what he's provided for us to and he he folds his arms and he says this is really good I think this is really 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 good you love a God like that you see how the devil will come in in Genesis chapter 3 and that's the thing he will seek to twist he'll say to them God isn't really good is he But he's good. Remember the conversation that comes into my mind in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mr. Tumnus, is it, who suddenly hears Aslan is a lion and he he says, he's a lion. Is he safe? And the great answer that Lewis conjures up from that brilliant mind of his, of course he's not safe. He's the king, I tell you. Of course he's not safe, but he's good, I tell you, very, very good. There's something that feels not safe about yielding your whole life into his hands, isn't there? The stability, the things that give you security, your ability to hang on to your own life. What What if God is going to call you to Rwanda? The, the, the logical truth of the matter when you see these pictures is I could do a thousand times more good in Rwanda than I'm likely to be able to do in Scotland. Isn't that the case? So why are people not pouring in persons and resources to the endless multitudes of situations that, the, that there are like that? Why, why in contrast to some past centuries with all our education? Do we bed down in western comfort rather than go there and multiply ourselves gloriously? There's a simple answer, isn't there? Maybe God is not calling us. But it may well be it makes us feel very insecure. But with Him you can never be insecure. These are the feelings of your imagination. He's the God who made it all. He's provided everything. To love and serve him in return is the way, the marvellous way of joy. But it's all gone. Why are people so frustrated? Well, of course they're frustrated. They were made for this. For this kind of fellowship with God, this kind of life with one another in all its beauty, in all its activity, for the sheer adventure of exercising dominion. And it's all gone, and so we're frustrated. Sin frustrates us. Because the sinner can never find satisfaction if he's been made for fellowship with the Creator. That's why the psalmist says, Oh God, what is man, the mess he is. And yet you made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. And perhaps you remember how the anonymous author of the letter to the Hebrews returns to that psalm and also to this passage in Genesis. And he says, oh, now I understand why Christ came. Now I understand why he took our humiliation." Now, I understand why Isaiah actually says at the end of Isaiah 52, at the beginning of the Suffering Servant song, I understand why he says he was marred beyond human likeness. Because he was coming down into the depths of our sin and our joylessness and our wasting of our privileges and taking all the entail of our sin upon himself. And then on the third day, he steps out of the tomb as the the second Adam. And the author of Hebrews says this about seeing things under man's foot. we, We don't yet see that, do we? Well, we don't, do we? What we see is chaos. But he says... The Christian, you see, has the lenses. We don't see everything under man's dominion. But we see Jesus. And he's already been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Because of the work he did to bring many sons to glory. And already he's sending his servants out those who have now been remade in His image, as the New Testament says. He's sending them out to the ends of the earth with the good news of the gospel that the Father who made you is willing to welcome you home and has made all the provision that you need to come home. And one day, it will all be gloriously fulfilled in the crowning of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, remember T.S. Eliot's poem, this is how the world ends, this is how the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. No, this is how the world ends, says Paul. When Christ has subdued all of his enemies, when Christ has transformed all of creation and done what Adam and Eve and their large family including us have failed to do do you know what he'll do then? this is what Paul says he will come with all of redeemed creation and all of his redeemed people and in our humanity as the second Adam he will kneel before the throne of his father and he will say to him it's all under our dominion And we're bringing it back to you as our love gift to you. Because you have given us so much. You have made us so special. You've provided everything we needed. You've brought us into communion with yourself. We've been blessed with communion with one another. And now, Father, just like those little children with which I began, but now growing up, And coming to their aged father, to the ancient of days, having made something wonderful, and brought it to him and said, Father, we did this because we love you so much. That's what it means. That's an exaggeration. That's a little bit of what it means to have been made as the image of God. To understand that in Jesus Christ we're part of a new creation. The image is being restored. And one day he will come and reign and transform all things and bring it back in love for his Father and ours. You see yourself in that. Little person as I am, I see myself in that and I walk out the door of the church into Monday morning and I can hold my head high in any company because I may be the only person in that company who actually knows who he or she really is as we would say in Scotland for dear brothers and sisters who are not Scottish isn't that grand isn't that grand Heavenly Father Thank you for your amazing love for us, and thank you for keeping on loving us when we have failed you so much. You have made us so special to yourself, and we have despised your special love for us. Forgive us, we pray. Clean our spectacle lenses by your word. Come and transform our warped and frustrated affections and emotions and our hardened will and bring us more and more to trust you in Christ and to love you. We pray this in our Saviour's name. Amen.
0: once again, that website address is S-O-L-A-S dot Thanks for listening.